Greetings, comrades, and welcome to another week's episode of Chatter in the Skull. Probably being a bit of a quicker episode, a little bit crunch for time this week anyway. Been trying to grind away on that Kenji video, I keep mentioning it, but now that I am back in good spirits, back in good health, still got a little bit of the sniffles, finally was able to get my voice recording done, and now like a little egg, it's incubating, and uh, it'll be hatching very shortly. So I've been really in the zone for that, and it's difficult to surface myself from it and take a look around the world. But there are some pretty important things happening. This has been a fairly busy week in terms of things that have been going on. And there are a couple of things that I would like to cover, and a couple of things that are really important and I think maybe haven't really been talked about enough. And I guess today we'll do our feel-good story first, or our feel-good story will be the very first thing we talk about because one way or another, this is a story that will probably make you feel good. So we're going to talk about my native province of British Columbia, which as of January 31st enacted a very interesting new law and something that has not been done before in Canada. And in fact, the government of British Columbia had to do a workaround to get this to happen. And we'll explain a little bit about that later on in the show. But we'll start off with what exactly is happening, and that is British Columbia has become the first government in Canada and the first province in Canada to legalize small amounts of illicit drugs. So this is from the official government of BC. This is from their official website, and we're going to go through a couple of the details quickly, and then we're going to do a larger kind of conversation on what this means and some other places that I've tried this and how it has worked out. But I think that this is a pretty big step to what will eventually happen, which I do think that full legalization of most drugs will happen within our lifetimes. And in fact, one of the ways I predict that in the future, governments will get money and one of the major tax revenue sources for it will be the sale of drugs and taxing the sale of drugs, obviously beyond what's legalized already. So this law came into effect on January 31st. So as of January 31st, if you are walking around with 2.5 grams of one of the following drugs, which I'll go over what exactly is deemed as decriminalized here. So if you are found with 2.5 grams of one of the following drugs, you will not be arrested by the police. It is not legalized, it is decriminalized. So it's in this kind of legal gray area where yes, you're not gonna go to jail, but you can't technically buy it at a store or anything. So essentially part of the reason this law is coming into existence and what it hopes to achieve is focusing of law enforcement on the sales of drugs, which is the major factor you want to crack down on rather than the people who use drugs. So anyway, what now the police can no longer arrest you if you have 2.5 grams of opiates, which include heroin, morphine and fentanyl, crack and its powder cocaine, meth, which is methamphetamine and ecstasy. So now if you're in BC, you can't and you have 2.5 grams of heroin, Police no longer can arrest you. Congratulations, British Columbia. I personally think that this is a step in the right direction. I know it sounds pretty extreme uh, on the face of it, but obviously this is not like you can't go out somewhere and just buy heroin. You can't just go 
to the store and buy it or anything like that. Again, it's intended to refocus the efforts and energies of the state and of law enforcement at large to try and crack down on the trafficking of drugs rather than the usage of drugs because essentially one of the big reasons people use these hard kind of drugs is because the system at large has failed them or for whatever reason they cannot succeed and the system we have created whether that's due to mental health reasons whether that's due to physical disability reasons the point here being is that the reason these people use these substances in the first place is because the system has, for whatever reason, failed them and they've fallen through the cracks. And the real people you do want to crack down on are those who are exploiting those people who have fallen through the system, exploiting their misery, exploiting their misfortune by, of course, selling them these dangerous and self-destructive substances. Cracking down on the people who are the substance users and the substance abusers doesn't really help things in the long term because it's just adding on to the suffering of people who are already suffering to a pretty harsh degree. While I think it's fair to say the drug dealer probably not suffering as much, especially the further you go on the old hierarchy of organized crime, the further you go up, I'm assuming that suffering just becomes less and less. One of the big things here that is very kind of bizarre is what is now decriminalized and what is still criminalized. So for example, you got 2.5 grams of the old Heisenberg blue, you're a-okay, but you got some magic mushrooms. Eh, nope, go to jail. So well, I understand like why they're focusing on these drugs because they are the ones that are most destructive and are causing the most amount of overdoses. It is a weird kind of oversight to overlook these other ones that now, I guess, police will spend more time focusing on. Who knows? But there are some further stipulations to this going forward. So let's just finish off what the government of BC has to say here. So what remains illegal? So basically the way it works is that it's based off the weight of these drugs. So if you have a bunch of these different drugs that can't exceed 2.5 grams, so you can't like have 2.5 grams of heroin and 2.5 grams of meth and so on and so forth. So there's a restriction based on weight and there are a couple of buildings in which this restriction won't be enforced. For example, they have elementary schools and the child care facilities. So obviously you can't be at airports and the Canadian Coast Guard vessels and helicopters. So you can't be doing cocaine in the bathroom of the Coast Guard vessel, unfortunately. But anywhere else, you're good. Well, except for the airport or school. Another thing that's interesting here is that, this is worded very strangely, but from the way I understand it, is that obviously if you're under the influence of any of these drugs, it's illegal to operate any kind of motor vehicle or watercraft, and you cannot have it on your possession if the motor vehicle or watercraft is operated by a minor. It doesn't matter if the vehicle's on or off. And what's interesting is you can have it in your car so long as it follows the safe storage rule, which is essentially like it's outside of your reach like when you're driving. So if you're driving and you put your ecstasy in the trunk where you can't reach it, you should be good to go. 
And if you're a member of the army, you still can't use it. So if you're a member of the army, too bad. This exemption doesn't exist for you. So that's the most important part here. We have about criminalization from the government itself. The one thing I do want to say here is what is interesting about how this was developed and how this was implemented. One of the reasons this is implemented is because British Columbia has an outsized proportion of opioid overdoses and related deaths than the rest of the country. Of the entire country of Canada, they have one third of all of the overdoses and substantially less than one third of the overall population. So it's a pretty serious issue. And for whatever reason, this has hit British Columbia harder than the rest of the country, particularly when you factor in per capita. So the way Canada works in comparison to the United States, where states have much more leeway when it comes to things like this, in Canada, the law is applied federally. The main reason is that when our country was formed, it was formed right after the American Civil War and the equivalents of our founding fathers were like, wow, how do we stop that crap from happening here? And one of the conclusions they came to was increase federal power. For example, in the United States, one of the things that it expressly says in the Constitution is that any powers which are not dictated to the federal government are automatically dictated to the states. We have something similar in Canada, except it's the opposite. So anything not dictated to the provinces is in the hands of the federal government. This exemption only exists in British Columbia, and that is because essentially the government of British Columbia went to the federal government and asked for this exemption, and the federal government granted it in something that is unprecedented for the country. So yeah, it's a pretty fascinating thing, and as I said before, I think it's a good thing we want to target the people who are selling and distributing them. In a broader sense, this will just ensure that law enforcement's resources are focused in a direction that they need to be focused in. They're not spending any time messing around with busting people over small amounts of drugs. But I think that this will open the door to broader decriminalization and hopefully legalization for large amounts of drugs which in my opinion, I'm a pretty big libertarian when it comes to drug use. I'd say pretty much legalize all forms of drugs and let the government make its cut out of the sale of drugs and keep the black market out of it. So anyway, I think that's the way the world's going and I think that we have our foot in the door now. So we do have a couple of articles here that I want to talk about before we move on to the last part of the show. Like I said, probably going to be a little bit shorter this week. We have this one. Oops, this one is from the CBC. And it is honestly not that great, but we'll go over it because it's the generic one. And that's one thing to mention quite quickly is that this is a timed event. So this is set to expire after three years. After three years, essentially, they're going to evaluate how things have gone whether or not there have been any decreases in overdoses, whether this policy has been effective, and then they'll renew it or scrap it. So this is not a thing which is going to be happening forever. Potentially, if it ends up not being effective, it's set to just expire in three years. But in any case, we've got this guy here. He's holding up boxes of various hard drugs and this guy is part of the fantastically named coalition, political coalition, the Drug User Liberation Front, which not only is just a hilarious 
sounding name. The acronym's hilarious too, as you can see. It's got Dolph in the flames there. So anyway, you can join the Dolph today, become a true Dolfer if you choose to. But anyway, Buddy here represents the Dolph and he's got a couple boxes of drugs held up. So starting Tuesday, that was obviously Tuesday this week, we've got the same stuff that we went over in the main body from the BC government. Yeah, actually, yeah, this article is really bad. Really only wanted to share the picture of the Dolphers, but they do have some information here that is interesting. For example, originally it was sought to have a threshold of 4.5 grams. However, that was beaten down over time as a compromised threshold of 2.5 grams. So this is the one thing I did want to, and this is in BC, we can see the massive rise of toxic drug deaths per year in British Columbia over the last, yeah, this is the last decade from 2012 to 2020. It has just been going up and up and up. And part of the reason why we are here and why we are trying to solve this problem in this way is because obviously what we're doing isn't working right now. So it's time for some radical solutions to the problem so yeah that's the main thing of this article but i do got a much better article here from the deep dive in terms of what this means and it also has some comparisons to places that have already tried this so let's go in here british columbia will become the first province in canada to decriminalize the personal use of heroin meth ecstasy and cocaine we have more information on the overdoses here but here is the stuff i really wanted to get into and i thought it was very useful is that they compared it to other places because i remember hearing about this that in 2001 portugal pursued a similar strategy of broad decriminalization of drugs and i remember hearing about this and thinking at the time obviously i was pretty young and thinking like wow that's crazy i can't believe they're doing that but according to some of the stats we have here Apparently, it has been effective, at least in terms of keeping people out of jail. And another thing, it has actually been effective in is decreasing the amount of new HIV diagnosis, especially those contributed to the injection due to drug use. So the health minister of Portugal estimated that by 2021, just about 25,000 Portuguese will be using heroin, down from 100,000 when the policy was implemented in 2001. And here's something really interesting here is that uh, the percentage of prisoners sentenced for drug-related offenses in Portugal was originally quite high when this was implemented. In 2000, it was 40% of all their prisoners were drug-related in comparison to around 15% for the European median. And then over time, through this policy, it has gone close and now it has actually dipped below the European median for the first time, which is super fascinating. To me that that why that was so high in the first place is it because people in portugal are using drugs a lot more using heroin a lot more i'm not sure exactly why it was so high in the first place but it's interesting to see that obviously uh, decriminalization has brought down the amount of people being arrested for drug use and this is also showing the decreased rates and hiv diagnosis has diminished over the past 20 years from over 500, yeah, 518 to 13. So obviously a massive decrease there. But I did not know that Oregon was a state which tried to do something similar, but they can't essentially make it completely 
illegal, they could probably do something like they did here and ask the federal government for exemptions. But the United States federal government probably less likely to actually grant those exceptions in comparison to the Canadian one. That being said, Oregon had something similar where they tried to decriminalize and essentially they have all but decriminalized various drugs, which include cocaine, heroin, LSD, methamphetamine. But the penalty was eventually lowered to a civil citation and a $100 fee, which could be waived if you were willing to take a health screening from a recovery hotline. So essentially just making the penalty for drug use as small as you can realistically get away with it. This happened on November 2020, so relatively recently. And because this is so recent, we still don't have data as to how this is impacting things in Oregon. That being said, though, hopefully in the next couple of years or so, maybe this year we'll have some real hard data as to what's going on. But uh, I did not know that until I read this article that Oregon had passed such reduced penalties for drug use. So the last part is uh, just how the city of Ottawa has requested, or excuse me, the city of Toronto has made a similar request to Ottawa, which is the capital of the country, to, in regards to having an exemption for the city. However, doesn't look like they've been granted it yet at this time. So maybe we're just waiting to see how things are going to work out in British Columbia. But it's obviously something to keep our eyes on as the time goes forward and see if it does have a substantial impact on drug deaths and drug use. So that'll bring us to the end of our discussion about this new policy here in British Columbia. And again, this is only in British Columbia, for example, here in Alberta. It doesn't apply to the rest of the country. It's only this one province, which, like I said, is something very new for us here in Canada to have a province exempted from the overall federal law like this. So now we are going to talk about something else in the realm of law enforcement related, and this will be a good example to talk about some of the severe problems while law enforcement is broken in most of the Western world and in most outside of the Western world as well. Let's be real, it's broken across the world. Within the United States, it's especially rotten, it seems, to a degree that doesn't exist in a lot of other places in the world. And I do think that there are a couple of key reasons as to why that is, and we'll talk about them today. But in case you don't know, once again, United States law enforcement is back in the spotlight for the way they dealt with a traffic stop by the man of Trey Nichols. So we can go over here. Obviously, Wikipedia is not the best kind of source for a deep dive or anything like that, or if we're going to try and make some sort of legalistic arguments. This is just to get an overview of what has happened. That is one of the best things I do like Wikipedia for is for getting a summary of what has happened in regards to a major event and also some sort of timeline accompanying that summary. So I'm not going to spend a whole ton of time breaking this down for you guys. The major reason that a lot of people are talking about this right now currently is because from the Memphis Police Department, they just released some of the body cam footage and some of the other footage in regards to what happened with Trey Nichols. 
and it's horrifying. It's honestly some of the most horrifying footage that you can find out there in regards to any kind of law enforcement encounter. The tape is very long and brutal, and I am not going to subject you guys to that here. If you guys want to have analysis and breakdown of that, there is plenty of places and plenty of other people who are doing that currently. I want to take my discourse in regards to this in a little bit of a different way and talk about some of the deep-seated issues that I think are plaguing law enforcement, particularly in the United States. So I'm just going to give a very brief summary as to what happened so people who may not know what has happened can get the context and details. This was a traffic stop issued by the Memphis Police Department, the MPD. This happened at 8.24 p.m. on January 7, 2023. So the police have stated the reason why they pulled Nichols over was that they said he was driving erratically. But we can see from the body cam footage that from the get-go, the police were extremely aggressive. So from the summary here, it says at the traffic stop, officers pulled Nichols out of his car. He said, I didn't do anything. An officer shouted, get on the effing ground. I'm going to tase your ass. Officers pushed Nichols to the ground at 8.25 p.m. A struggle began between the officers and Nichols as they attempted to pin Nichols to the ground. They yelled expletives at him and used pepper spray, used a taser on him. The pepper spray hit several other officers, which uh, pepper spray is prone to do. Ultimately, though, Nichols was able to break free. He was able to flee from two officers, but he was pursued. And then eventually they caught up with him. One of the officers who conducted the traffic stop can be heard saying, I hope they stomp his ass. This is when things get even worse when they're able to get to Nichols. Excuse me, he was able to break free and drive away. And then eventually the officers caught up to Nichols at Castlegate Lane and Bear Creek, which is approximately half a mile away from the original traffic stop. There he was beaten for three more minutes. Body cam footage showed an officer shouting to Nichols, I'm going to baton the F out of you. After that, after that, officers pulled Nichols to a standing position and restrained his hands during his time. Nichols was repeatedly punched in the face by officers and eventually he fell to a kneeling position. Within the next minute, Nichols was kicked by an officer the footage shows at least five punches to Nichols' face. The New York Times reported that Nichols repeatedly cried out for his mother and did not appear to strike back during the beating. I'm just sitting here reading it, and it's unbelievably brutal. But again, it, the footage is even worse. Continuing on the scene, the video footage shows officers issuing at least 71 commands over 13 minutes. The New York Times described the orders as often simultaneous and contradictory and sometimes impossible to obey, citing an example where an officer struck Nichols with a baton and he was simultaneously shouting, give us your hands, but another officer was already manipulating Nichols' handcuffed arm. When an officer shouted, give me your effing hands, Nichols had one officer pinning his arms behind his back, a second officer holding his handcuffed wrists, a third officer was punching Nichols in the face. By 8.37 p.m., Nichols was handcuffed and limped. This was exactly when it did to start again. So 8.24, this is now 13 minutes after the incident has started. After Nicholas was on the ground, 
the involved officers convened and shared their stories of the arrest. One officer bragged, I was hitting him with straight up haymakers, dog. One other exclaimed, I jumped in, just started rocking him. Medics arrived at 8.41, so that is four minutes after, but they did not begin to assist Nichols until 16 minutes later. An ambulance arrived at 9.02 p.m. and took Nichols to St. Francis Hospital at 9.18 p.m. after he complained of shortness of breath. And then Nichols died January 10th, so he died two days later in the hospital unbelievably brutal story and thankfully i'm not seeing anybody out there justifying what these police officers did at least not yet i haven't seen anyone come out and say any kind of justification everyone is in agreement here condemning what these police officers did calling it what it is straight up murder this is not what they teach you at least this is not anything like I have been taught in terms of how to interact with people, what you're supposed to do in extreme situations and extreme encounters. And from the way everything is described and from what we can see leading up to the event, this was not an extreme encounter by any stretch of the imagination. But for whatever reason, the unit which was either conducting this traffic stop or responded to the officers who requested backup was called the Scorpion Unit, which is essentially a unit which was created to deal with high violent, high risk situations. So why they were called in or why were they were conducting a traffic stop, it shows that maybe you are in a place where you don't really need such a unit of people. Maybe these people are superfluous and unnecessary to your actual mandate, which is to protect and serve the people. But the real question is, why does this keep happening? It seems like every year, two years maximum, we end up having another horrific incident happening like this in the United States. And yes, of course, we can look to Canada. We can look to the United Kingdom and Australia and New Zealand and France, and Germany, and Spain, and all these other countries, and we can see examples of police brutality and misconduct, but it never seems to be on the severity and scale of what happens in the United States. And I think that there's a couple reasons as to why, and I'm going to break them down for you guys. So let's start with what I think is one of the fundamental differences in the way law enforcement philosophy is implemented here in Canada and here in the United States. And one of the things which I discovered in my years of travels is that generally speaking, law enforcement positions in the United States are paid about 50% less than they are here in Canada. And that is after currency conversion. And when I started even breaking down the numbers further, we're going to actually do a little bit of math here, hooray, hooray, just so I can show you guys what I mean, is one of the things you find is that in the United States, you have actually way more police officers, but they are paid way less than their counterparts here in, say, for example, Canada. So you've got more officers, but they tend to be of not the same quality, I guess you could say. So to explain what I mean here, we're going to use publicly available data and break it down for you. We're going to do a little bit of comparison to the New York Police Department, 
to the city where I live, which is Edmonton. So we're going to compare the two police departments a bit. We're going to factor things down and get them to as a close to a one-to-one -one ratio as we possibly can. So we can make sure that we are getting as an apples to apples comparison to one another. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to check out the budgets of each. And this is the NYPD budget. Okay, here we go. Sorry, this is uh, now we have an updated budget here. This is for 2022. We have a $11.8 billion budget. However, this needs to be stressed that there are two sections to this. One is the operating budget, which is uh, salaries, equipment, that kind of crap. And then there's what they deem as the other half, which, what do they call it? What the fuck is the name they give it? There we go, operating and central expenses. And this is stuff like benefits, pensions, this kind of stuff operating over a period of time. It's also things like debt interest, ser servicing you know, things like debt interest and that kind of crap. So yeah, there are two basic parts to the budget, the operating costs and the central expenses. And we need to make sure that you're comparing one on one. Sometimes some budgets don't, they merge them together or they only post the operating costs. So we just have to make sure that we are aware of that. All right, just so we make sure we've got things worked out. So for the New York Police Department, we have a 1.8 total billion dollar cost of operating the police department and a 1.5 billion dollar operating cost and a 3.5 billion dollar central expense cost, which again, this, that's things like pensions, benefits, and that kind of stuff. So let's find out what it is for us here over in Alberta. All right, so after making sure, again, we're all on the same page here, this is funding for 2022 for the Edmonton Police Service. They marked the Edmonton Police Service operating budget at a total of $407 million. And as we stated before, that is the net operating budget i don't believe that includes things as the central expenses as we saw in the new york police department budget so as i could see i could not find that information for the edmonton police service so again we're going to make sure we're comparing operating budget to operating budget so we're going to take that number and then we're going to factor things down and see where that gets us okay so we got the budgets now so now what we're going to do, we're going to grab the populations of each city and then we're going to divide them and see how much it costs each taxpayer per year to fund their various police departments. So we can grab the population of New York right here. It's 8.5 million. So just to make sure we're getting as good a comparison as we can, that number we got for New York was the 2020 census. This is the 2021 census for Edmonton, which is um, just over a million people. So easy, one million. Okay, New York's a pretty big city, well over eight times the population of Edmonton. So now let's divide up these budgets here and see how much each person in each city is paying. All right, after all right, everybody, after some quick math, you can just see here what exactly I did to work this out. The average New Yorker, and again, we're just taking the operating cost. This isn't even the total budget, at least as 
published by the New York Police Department. This isn't even taking into that $5.5 billion central expenses. This is operating budget to operating budget. So in terms of that, the average New Yorker pays uh, $624 per year for their police department, where the average Edmontonian pays $407 per year for their police department. In other words, the average New Yorker pays $217 more per year or 65% more than the average Edmontonian. So that's quite a substantial increase in terms of dollars per year, especially as that goes on year over year, that money starts to add up. So the question is, where does that disparity come from? Well, let's explore that a little bit. So let's look into the first place where that discrepancy might be, which is in terms of salary. Are police in New York getting paid more than police in Edmonton? Well, here we're going to take the five-year salary for both, well, I guess five and a half years for the case of the New York Police Department. So after five years, you're making about 85 grand in terms of U.S. dollars. Pretty good salary. Your starting salary seems pretty shitty. $42,500 seems pretty bad. But after some time, you, you get a pretty decent pay. Moving over here to the Edmonton Police Department. When you go down to salary, we'll go to, again, five-year constable. They get 106000 Canadian dollars. So what does that compare to in terms of one or the other? So I got a comparison right here. It depends on what the dollar is doing oh whoops you guys can't see that there we go but it depends on what the dollar is doing but right now that's just under what a constable would be paid but the dollar is pretty weak right now so if the dollar was stronger they'd be getting paid about the same and the thing is let me tell you that salary is going to go a lot further in edmonton then it's going to go in New York. To be fair, I have never been to New York. I've just heard stories about the appalling cost of living. And while there are certainly things here like food, which are expensive, it's definitely a much cheaper place to live than I would think New York is. But uh, that's neither here nor there. The point is that, yeah, they get paid about the same amount of money. Okay, so salary is not the discrepancy. Maybe it's the volume of police officers. So right here on the NYPD website, this says currently the New York Police Department has 36,000 officers. <laughs> That's more soldiers than most countries have in their armies, but regardless. So 36,000 officers and 19,000 civilian employees. We're just going to compare officer to officer. So yeah, that's a lot. I think 36,000, we're going to move over. What is it in Edmonton? In Edmonton, this is just taken directly off of both the direct websites from each police service department. Yes, the Edmonton Police Service has 1,780 police officers and about 700 or so employees. So let us take those numbers and we'll divide them by the population again and see what we get. So now we finally have figured it out. We've got the piece of the puzzle as to why people in New York are paying that increase. We can see that once we plug in the total population of New York divided by the number of officers, for every police officer, there are 236 New York citizens. And when we do the same thing for Edmonton, for every Edmontonian, for every police officer, 
there is 601 Edmontonians, meaning the actual ratio of citizen to police officer, it is significantly higher in New York than it is in Edmonton. And the thing is, we can go and we can replicate this with pretty much every city across the United States and Canada. The main thing that's going to change is that the salaries in other cities in the United States is going to start going down considerably, especially the further you get away from major cities, it's going to start really plummeting. So there is definitely a huge difference there in terms of how many police officers the United States decides that its city needs in comparison to a Canadian city. Basically, there's almost twice as many Canadian citizens per police officer versus American citizens per police officer. And that was one of the things, especially with this killing of Trey Nichols, was the fact that there were five cops there. Why are five cops responding to one single traffic stop? It seems to me that there is a glut of manpower within the force, that there are too many police officers and not enough things for them to do. So they are essentially out there. They have idle hands, right? And that is obviously a recipe for disaster. So I'll tell you guys one thing when it comes to how at least the city, the state, whatever you want to call it, the government usually views the deployment of its law enforcement agents is it sees it in a term in terms of limited manpower. I've got this many officers, I've got this amount of territory that needs to be patrolled. I've got this much man hour between the shifts and time that I have. How can I maximize my use of man hours in the correct places? If you've got four people from this Scorpion unit or five people from the Scorpion unit meant again to deal with particularly violent and dangerous people, you have to respond to the Travis stop. That to me sounds like you're not exactly spending your time wisely. And again, you have a recipe for disaster here, which is obviously befallen us as we're talking. So that's one of the major issues in the United States. You've got too many people that are underpaid in comparison to a lot of other occupations out there. So again, you've got this kind of very toxic mix of people who don't have enough to do and people who may not be the best quality of person because you haven't been really offering the salaries to attract the type of people that you want to attract for that job, if that makes sense. But there's another reason beyond that. And I think that is the atmosphere of fear that the American gun culture permeates for not just people in law enforcement, for but for people interacting with them. There's a very different attitude to when you pull over someone in a routine traffic stop in various places in the United States and you're dealing with a scenario where that person very likely has a weapon within arm's reach concealed somewhere. That's going to change your attitude. That's going to change the way you interact with people and that's going to change the way you think about every interaction even if they're mundane and benign because you're worried that this person again has a pistol under the seat of their car. 
So you're going to be much more on edge understanding that this interaction goes south. It could be your last type of thinking, whereas in Canada here are gun laws around concealed carry are extremely stringent, extremely strong. There's really no such thing. We haven't really talked about guns on the show. And one of the things that the 20th, when it comes to the United States, yes, I'm definitely on the left when it comes to gun control. However, here in Canada, I definitely actually align more with the Conservative Party in terms of their outlook on guns, because I really dislike the way the Liberal Party deals with gun ownership, because they use it as like a cheap political tool that they can use to gain points in areas that they already have, that they're already pretty strong in, which are urban areas, and they can use it as a really strong tool between urban and rural voters. So yeah, I don't like the way that gun laws are handled here in this country. I think we could stand to be a touch more open, but in the United States, yeah, definitely in favor of a pretty decent amount of gun control. And again, it varies on state to state, right? Because again, in the United States, states have much more leeway in terms of their laws. Obviously, some states have much more strict gun laws and other states have much more lenient gun laws. Anyway, the way I feel is that fear, and or maybe not that fear is not the right word, but that anxiety when you're in an interaction like a traffic stop potentially is going to rub off on the people you're dealing with. They can maybe sense that anxiety, and that's going to make them anxious too. And when people are anxious, they don't always necessarily think logically or act logically. And some guy makes a little twitch, and all of a sudden, the police officer's anxiety, is who's already on high alert, is triggered. And all of a sudden, that interaction with complete misunderstanding ends in tragedy. And when it comes to that problem, I have no idea how you fix that. When it comes to increasing the quality of police, you can definitely do that. You don't even have to necessarily increase the budget. You could probably cut the amount of officers in a large swath of United States police forces. And that's another thing we haven't even really touched on is the militarization of police forces in the United States. And that we didn't really touch on because it wasn't a huge factor here, I would argue, but it is a factor in a lot of different places. And it isn't a factor here in Canada because a way a lot of police get their hands on these equipments is through kind of military, military surplus, use military goods, stuff that the army wants to get rid of essentially and is going to get rid of anyway. So they just give it to police. And in the United States, there's a pretty robust defense industry considering that they are the largest and most powerful army in the world. In Canada, we don't have quite as a robust defense industry. So it, the problem, it does exist here, but it's nowhere near as bad because we don't have this massive military industrial complex, complex just dumping hordes of used equipment on our police forces. But I think that in terms of the militarization of police, if you had better quality officers, that wouldn't be as much of an issue anyway. Obviously, that is something that always has the potential to spiral into something uncontrollable with the wrong type of people. So it's probably better that it doesn't exist anyway. But the, with the root problem in terms of increasing officer quality, that is something we can do. But when it comes to that fear and that paranoia that really seems to permeate a lot of places in the United States, I genuinely don't know what the problem or what solutions 
we can offer to that problem. Honestly, it seems unsolvable. So <laughs> don't mean to be a downer there, but yeah, I don't know what we could do. Anyway, that's going to be the show for today by in large. But I thought these were pretty important things to talk about today. I did get a lot of great comments from last week's episode that I wanted to cover, but I think we're going to save that for another time. I, and not to just exclusively rag on the United States, because again, policing and law enforcement is broken everywhere, but in the United States, it's just shattered <laughs> into an unrecognizable mess. And while I definitely am obviously, I'm obviously not a defund the police kind of person, but in terms of reform the police, there's a ton of work to be done there. And realistically, the goals of the whole defund the police movement were really reform the police, just expressed in the absolute worst possible way they could because when you say defund the police, people immediately think you talk about. So getting rid of the police and having some sort of like anarchist system of gangs of thugs or something like that in their place, you know, whatever would potentially grow out of a no police scenario. But no, what we're really talking about is reform the police, look for ways that we can advance law enforcement into the 21st century. And in that, and on that front, I think there's like a ton of common ground that can be had between left-leaning people and right-leaning people, because I do think, especially in the United States, a lot of right-leaning people recognize the need for reform in American law enforcement and just how dire the situation is getting and, you know, that they need to move on this issue or things are just going to progressively get worse and worse. Yeah, that is a place where I do think there is actually course and an area for common ground. We just got to find the best way to really convey our message. And I think that, yeah, there's a lot of work actually that we can kind of do together. We can all do on this one. Well, I guess most Americans mostly, but again, law enforcement is busted everywhere. Yeah, on this issue, I actually think there is a lot more compromise. And I think, again, people do recognize in the United States that things are pretty busted in terms of law enforcement. And there is the possibility to maybe not fix everything, but make things a lot better than they are now. So with that, that brings me to the end of this week's episode. I want to thank you guys for watching. Don't really have anything more to say other than that. Well, I guess we front-loaded the good feelings this week. But I am pretty interested, especially to hear at large people around the world, other people in Canada, what they think of what BC is doing, what people in the United States, what people in Europe and all around the world think about this move potentially and what kind of ramifications, if it'll be good, if it'll be bad, and if the long-term consequences are really going to be a benefit. So in any case, I'll just leave it there. So this has been to Comrades signing off for now, and I want to thank you guys for watching. And until next time, you guys take care.